Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in cybersecurity, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the founder and CEO of CyberSC, an advisory firm that helps startups and small businesses enhance their cybersecurity needs. But before I introduce you to Dominic Vogel, a cybersecurity expert with 12 years in the field, I want to make sure you're signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter, and it features career advice and job-seeking tips, as well as unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals like Dominic who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at Time. The number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dominic Vogel, founder and chief strategist at CyberSC, which has a proven track record within cybersecurity across a ton of industries, including financial services, logistics, transportation, healthcare, government, telecommunications, and critical infrastructure. CyberSC specializes in providing cybersecurity management and expertise to financial service companies and law firms. It also provides on-demand cybersecurity services that actually augment an organization's current capabilities in a way that is less costly and more effective than traditional advisory companies. Outside his day job, Dominic serves as an external cyber risk advisor to various boards of directors and C-suite executives. And last but not least, Dominic and his partner co-host a podcast that you may want to check out called Cybersecurity Matters. It launched two years ago. And as of the time that we are doing this recording, which is the very beginning of August 2021, they have dropped around 90 episodes, so plenty for you to binge. Dominic, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your tea and ready to go? (laughs) You bet. I'm uh, all amped up. Fantastic. Well, as I said, it is early August 2021. I am on the East Coast of the U.S. You are in North America, but up in the beautiful British Columbia of Western Canada. How is the weather now in B.C.? It's been a lovely summer. You know, this is the time of year that we wait for all year, so I am happy you're catching me on a very good day. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So do you live 
in the city or are you out in the burbs? So we live about 35 minutes east of Vancouver. Oh, God. I have to tell you, Vancouver is one of my all-time favorite cities. Spectacular. I know I'm biased because I grew up here, but I'm very thankful to have grown up here and and live here and have my kids grow up here. It is pretty special. (laughs) It is. And especially if you're a skier, an outdoors lover, I had the great pleasure a while ago, unfortunately, but to take the train from Vancouver to Whistler to ski there for some spring skiing one year. And it was just beyond anything I had experienced before. That's a heck of a corridor trip there from Vancouver to Whistler. I'm on the most scenic drives out there. (laughs) Yes. Well, let's leave the scenic outdoors and move into (laughs) the world of cybersecurity that exists out there in the ether. And, you know, Dom, we hear so much about the importance of cybersecurity nowadays. And I, for one, I know it's hard to pick up the paper any day or look at it online without seeing a news report about cyber attacks. And I read on your company's website that cyber attacks are happening now at an unprecedented rate and that there had been, you used the number 300% increase in cyber crime since the pandemic started in early 2020. How can that be? Really where we're seeing cyber crime just, just continually evolve to the point where cybercrime has actually surpassed the drug trade as being the preferred crime of choice by criminal syndicate organizations right across the world. It's safer, it's more profitable, it's scalable, and they can commit these crimes anywhere in the world. It can be somewhere in the middle of the, you know, some remote island in the Pacific, as long as they have an internet connection, you know. So it's very much firmly given the rise, like I said, of cybercrime within the world right now. I think it very much speaks to the fact that we have, and this has been something which has been 20, 25 years in the making to be at this point. Did the fact that millions of us went from working in an office, maybe where cybersecurity firewalls or whatever would be the case, were more firmly in place to working from home where maybe they were not. Did that contribute to this rise? To a degree. I mean, now all of a sudden you have a very decentralized workforce and we, especially with the concepts and paradigms like working from anywhere, we're going to see that happen more and more. So I think that has somewhat splintered, let's just say, the security ecosystem (laughs) before people were like better terms, more moderately protected with more traditional security technologies and approaches. Now with these new paradigms, they're not necessarily as well protected. So I think that has helped fuel the, the rise in a focus on cybercrime as well. Who are these cyber criminals? Are they the guy with the hoodie in the basement? Are they, and I should say the most, who are the most prevalent cyber criminals? Is it the individual? Are they state actors? Are these like drug rings, that type of thing that maybe are are outside the state? There are nation state actors at every state, whether that be on the quote unquote good side, whether that be the US, Western Europe, what have you. I mean, they are state actors as well, but even the various sides, whether that be Russia, Iran, North Korea, China, at the nation state level, they are investing in, let's say, perform more along the lines of cyber espionage. It's not quite cyber crime. But let's say from a private sector perspective, you know, every single criminal syndicate organization and a massive criminal syndicate organizations throughout the world, right, North America, South America, Europe, 
anywhere where there are people, criminal organizations exist, right? And that's been true since the days of ancient Egypt, right? That, that's nothing new there per se. What is new, though, is that there's a new venue for committing crimes, and these criminal syndicate organizations see the opportunity in that, and they've invested heavily in being able to commit these scalable crimes throughout the world. How would you describe cyber attacks? What does a cyber attack look like? It means different things and can mean different things to different people. Some of the more common cyber attacks, I'll just run through some of the more common scenarios right now. So one is a data breach. So that's where sensitive information, sensitive data, whether it be sensitive business information or client or customer data is stolen. And if it's stolen, that means then as an organization, you may need to declare a privacy breach, a security breach, you may be slapped with regulatory fines, you may be hit with a class action lawsuit by your shareholders or your employees about properly protecting your data. So that's one particular example of a cyber attack. Another one could be what's referred to as ransomware. Ransomware is where your IT systems and your data are held for ransom. It's basically almost like the kidnapping of the 21st century. Right? They've kidnapped your key systems and IT and business systems and data. In order to regain access to that, you have to pay a ransom. Ransomware is probably one of the, it's almost like a digital wildfire. It's just running rampant in small and mid-sized organizations throughout the world. So that's another example of a very common cyber attack that we're seeing right now. Wow, that is fascinating. I also read on your website, and we touched on this in the Espresso Shots episode that we just finished recording. And by the way, check out show notes for this episode to see if Dominic's Espresso Shots episode dropped. That's the one where we get into how you can break into this industry if you're interested. But you say on your website, Dom, that 43% of cyber attacks are actually targeting small organizations, not the big ones. And that 60% of small businesses won't recover from these attacks, don't recover from these attacks and end up going out of business after about six months. Why is that? It speaks to the level of unpreparedness at the small and mid-sized business level. Most enterprises and let's say Fortune 500 companies are very well prepared to deal with cyber risk and have fairly extensive cybersecurity capabilities. It's because they've been a target for many more years than the small and mid-sized businesses. It's only been within the past 10 years or so where small and mid-sized businesses have, as they've become increasingly more online, more digitized, undergone digital transformation, that they come to the forefront. And now all of a sudden, you know, cyber criminals are realizing that there's a whole bunch of small and mid-sized organizations that they can basically digitally break into at a fraction of the cost compared to breaking into a enterprise organization and still be able to reap the same rewards. You know, I think about it almost like uh, if you're a car thief and you're looking in a crowded parking lot. Sure, there's going to be the supercars like the Ferraris and what have you that you could break into, but they are all under lock and key and have you know, state-of-the-art security systems to prevent them from being stolen. But there's a ton of other cars which may not be as fancy, but they still provide some value on the black market if they're stolen. And they're not, these cars likely don't even have their doors locked. Right. So that's sort of the analogy that, that, that I give with where we are right now, where I mean, small and mid-sized businesses, cyber criminals are just chomping at the bit because they provide incredible value from a theft perspective. And they're not, like I said, they're not very well protected or secured. And that's usually because in terms of the value, because of the ransomware, because of the... Because, yes, exactly. Ransomware right now is probably the most common way that cybercrime is monetized or that criminals are monetizing by exploiting on a lack of cybersecurity at an organization. Okay. So let us get into it, Dominic, in terms of 
what you do for your small business clients. You focus, I believe, on serving financial service companies and law firms. So the smaller ones, is that correct? That is correct. And why do you focus on these industries in particular? I'll preface that by saying those are the ones that we try to focus on, but we do a lot of work with the manufacturing sector, smaller municipalities and towns. Where we do a lot of work with other organizations as well. But the reason why we primarily still focus on smaller financial service organizations and law firms is that they tend to be at a higher level of awareness in terms of why they need to invest in cybersecurity. So we don't have to go through the same gauntlet of the, oh, why should I bother investing in cybersecurity type banter. They're already at a state of somewhat enlightenment where they know it's a problem. They know they need to invest in it, but they don't have the internal resources or leadership in order to fulfill it. And that's where we come in. We bring our team of virtual security leaders and we develop cybersecurity programs for these organizations from the ground up. And like so we fulfill that internal leadership function for our clients. And by internal leadership, do you mean like a CIO, a chief information officer, or what would that be? What would the title so that, be? Yeah, so it would be a chief information security officer. Got it. And that's actually Our a role. on cybersecurity. Yes. And that's actually a role that you held in corporate. Yes. Yes, it, uh, yes I did. You know, and, and all the people that are on our team, they are all security leaders in their own respective fields. You know, we have cybersecurity leaders who come from the retail space, from e-commerce, from healthcare, from multiple diff- different industries. And so it's important that and how we shape the company that our people first and foremost are, are leaders. And that's where often we, we find where the gap is when it comes to cybersecurity. Organizations that think cybersecurity is an IT issue and try to solve the problem by just having their IT guys install a bunch of programs or hardware, that doesn't solve the risk function, right? It needs to be taken on from a leadership perspective, but it needs to be seen through a risk lens. Is that the right oversight governance from the executives? It's not simply a matter of just saying, oh, our IT guy deals with cybersecurity. That's a very dated mindset. Mm. Well, speaking of people, I found this next point that I read super surprising about vulnerabilities when it comes to cyber breaches. And that's the fact that it's usually the people who work at your company who are the biggest risk. Why is that? And how do you defend or shore up your defense against this vulnerability, Dominic? When we're looking at what's referred to, I guess, from an insider perspective, data breaches or security incidents can happen on sort of two different levels. There's someone who is a what's referred to as a malicious insider. So that's where they're actively stealing data from their company and trying they're selling it on the underground market or they're selling it to China or what have you. For the most part, that's fairly small percentage for organizations. And that's generally more common in organizations that have very valuable intellectual property. So not to dismiss it, but for most organizations, that's not really an issue. Where the biggest issue is, is what's referred to as an accidental insider. And so those are people who have a very low level of awareness when it comes to actually how dangerous you know, the, the online world is. Right? These are people who will, no matter what email you send them, they'll click the attachment, they'll click the link. And by doing so, if it's a malicious link, they could now have accidentally exposed the entire network to ransomware, as an example. Or they may not think about sensitive data and they may just be sending it out all over the place without really thinking about the ramifications. That's what we refer to as accidental insiders. And those are people who, because they don't really understand the true gravitas of, of the online world and, and the concept of cyber risk, that their actions accidentally expose the organization to increased cyber risk. 
Could you share perhaps one of the bigger cybersecurity breaches that you have personally helped a client or maybe even one of the companies where you worked prior to going out on your own to manage and mitigate? One of the ones which always sticks in my mind, and this is giving a good example of an accidental cybersecurity incident, was I was a financial institution where I used to work, and one of the developers who was working on the new online banking system wanted to have the ability to work on that code from home. And at the time, there was no remote access for any of the developers. They had to be in the office to do their work. And he would work long hours and he wanted to be at home, and rightly so. And rather than providing him with remote access, what happened was that he uploaded the entire source code to Dropbox. So now all of a sudden, you had very, very sensitive data uploaded to a site like Dropbox. And here in BC, you know, we have fairly strict privacy regulations and you know, something like that. We would draw the ire of our provincial privacy commissioner. All of a sudden, when we discovered that, we're like, oh, no, this is a significantly bad issue. <laughs> so we had to go through a whole gauntlet of making sure that the data hadn't been improperly accessed, that, that it was properly removed from Dropbox, and it just being like a, a privacy and data security nightmare. But the, I think the, the key thing in all of that, though, was that how IT and by extension, the cybersecurity team, it was their fault that this happened. You know, a lot of people were saying, well, you know, this, the developer should have known better. Well, if IT and security had listened to the business needs of the organization and actually seen that this was a legitimate use case, we should have been providing him remote access long ago. And that's something which I always remind our clients of is that while it's certainly easy to wag the finger at an employee if they made a misstep, what's super important is that when these accidental insider threats happen or manifest, you need to do a thorough lessons learned. What's the true root cause? Because often the action of the employee is a symptom of a larger systemic problem which needs to be solved. Well, speaking of systemic problems, what would you say is one of the biggest mistakes that average people like me are making, I hope not on a daily basis, but it may well be with respect to cybersecurity or, (laughs) or lack thereof. And what could I and our listeners do right now to better protect ourselves? The thing I always drum right now is to make use of what's referred to as two-factor or multi-factor authentication for any of your online tools and platforms that you use, whether that be your web-based email like Officer 65 or Gmail, for your social media accounts, for LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, turn on multi-factor authentication. So in a nutshell, what that is, is it's your username and password, and then it's t- uh, you also get tied an extra form of authentication, which could be, could be a code that sends a one-time pin to your email or to your text message. It could be tied to something which is called an authenticator app. Those are available with Google or Microsoft or other organizations. Why this is so important is that the username and password model is broken, right? Passwords, unfortunately, are a terrible way of of securing things. It's a paradigm which came out in in the 50s in terms of IT systems, and it's been broken probably since the mid-90s, but here we are all these years later, and we still are heavily reliant on them. Multi-factor authentication really helps it to really properly secure your accounts because if your password gets compromised, someone would still need physical access to your device, your smartphone as an example, in order to gain access to those applications. So all these applications make multi-factor authentication accessible and configurable, very easy and straightforward to do, but unfortunately they're not on by default. So I always tell people for your email and your social media accounts, 
internal multi-factor authentication are one of the single most effective things you can do right now from a risk reduction perspective. I am going to do that as soon as I get off (laughs) this interview. (laughs) I promise you, Dominic. All right. So it's quite well known that despite the next to zero percent unemployment rate for those who go into cybersecurity, and let me repeat that, the next to zero percent unemployment rate, there is still a huge gender gap in cybersecurity. And I know that you support groups like the Canadian Women in Security Forum and have spoken on panels about this topic. Why, Dominic, do you think that more women are entering this field? And why do you think it's important for cybersecurity to have more women, to be more inviting for women and other minorities to enter the field? I put it this way, you know, I mean, security is like any ecosystem, right? In order for any ecosystem to not just survive and thrive, it requires diversity. And it's diversity on all levels, right? Gender diversity, thought diversity, racial diversity, life experience diversity. Cybersecurity and IT by extension has always been a, unfortunately, a, a, a boys club, right? It is predominantly still a very white male driven culture. It's still a very, very misogynistic culture as well. So a lot of sexism that, that happens in our industry, which is extremely, extremely disappointing given you know where we are right now. We need to see greater levels of diversity and inclusion in the field. And for me, I recognize that the paths that I have taken growing this field have been much, much easier than my non-white counterparts. You know, I, I recognize that I've, any roadblocks I've ever encountered have been very minimal. And I couldn't look at my, at my daughter my kids in the eyes if I didn't try to do more to make sure that there was more equitable treatment in not just in my field, but in society as a whole. You know, so I think it, it's super important for everyone in this field to make the field as diverse and inclusive as possible. It saddens me that we still see so much sexism and misogyny with, within the field. It, in many ways, it's a microcosm still of the way you know, society is, is today. So I always make sure that it's incumbent for my colleagues and peers, especially my white male peers and colleagues, that they go above and beyond to make sure that, as an example, when I'm on a panel, I make sure that there's good representation there. It shouldn't just be white males, right? And this actually just happened a few weeks ago where I was invited to be on the panel. It was all white males. And I said, I can't participate. Give my spot to a female or someone else who is deserving to to be on that panel. It should not be all white males. So I think those types of actions are important to make sure that we reach true diversity and inclusion in the field. Got it. Okay. Well, thank you for that. So let's flashback really quickly, Dominic to when you were in school. You went to Simon Fraser University in British Columbia in Canada, and you majored in computer science. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated? I did, yeah. <laughs> my, my brief origin story is in the summer of grade 12, just before I went into university, I, I knew I wanted to do something with computers and with technology, but I wasn't sure what. And my dad, who was a computer science high school teacher here in, in Vancouver, since retired, but um, I remember he brought home a stack of technology magazines. And he says, there's got to be something in here that interests you. And I spent days pouring through all these magazines. And one day, this magazine popped out of nowhere and it said, information security, which is the, not an name for cybersecurity. And I read the magazine cover to cover and I was just enamored with it. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. It wasn't just technical stuff. It was blend of risk, communication and analysis. I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. So I ended up doing a lot of 
self-learning on that field because cybersecurity was just not taught in my computer science degree. The word cybersecurity was mentioned once. It was me asking a question about it <laughs> during my whole four-year degree. So I did a lot of self-learning on it and I knew I wanted to get in that field. And I held out for six months after I graduated to try and find a job in the field. And finally, someone recognized my passion and took a chance on me. And I've been at it ever since. So before I ask you about that first job, I have to ask you, how did you do the self-learning? Where were you getting this information and, and how were you teaching it to yourself? The gift of the internet. So I, I, there's a lot of uh, cybersecurity uh, websites that I, I did reading on and I still read them to this day. I studied for a entry-level certification. It's called Security Plus. I remember getting, you know, buying that textbook, studying it, taking the test, getting certified. So it was a lot of, like I said, very self-driven learning through purchasing various textbooks online and reading as much as I could. What are those certifications that you would recommend people look at? Uh, highly, highly recommend like, for people looking to start in the field. It's called Security Plus. It's a, the word security with a plus sign after. Quick Google search on that and you'll, it'll all pop up. <laughs> but I always recommend that to, to people that I mentor and, and, and coach and who are looking to, to start in the field. It provides such a great 10,000 foot view of all the domains that make up cybersecurity. So incredible breadth and it really allows you to really understand at at least a fairly good level of depth what those different disciplines and domains within cybersecurity are. So it's one of the best ways of exposing yourself to the field. Okay. And you mentioned there are websites that you looked at that you still look at today. What are those websites? Two of my favorites, uh, and I find that they're really great because it does provide really great insight in, in, into the field. One of them is called darkreading.com, and the other one is called csoonline.com. That one provides a really great, especially if you're more of someone here who's interested in the long-term leadership, maybe being a security director, chief information security officer. It has a, just a fantastic, fantastic daily reading there on cyber risk management. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. So what was that first job, Dominic? And how did you get it? I, it was through my passion. I waited six months. I wanted to have a job in cybersecurity and I interviewed at a place and I just, my passion shined through. I said how much I love the field, how much I wanted to, to work in it. I was willing to, to learn and to be taught. And the, the hiring manager, he said, you know what? I'll tell you what, Dom, he said, you're not the most qualified for this. He said, but by far, you're the most passionate who's interviewed. He said, I'm going to pay you peanuts, but I'd be really happy to have you on the team. And I said, yeah, let me know where to sign up. And I'll never forget again the power of someone taking a chance on, on someone else, right? He saw that passion in me and he allowed me to get into the field and I wouldn't be where I am today without him, right? And then I, I recognize that all these years forward that you can't just be evaluating people based on perceived talent or experience, right? When you take a chance on someone, you have the opportunity to, to truly change the world. And, you know, it's, it's something, like I said, is a, is a life lesson, which I'll, I'll never forget. So was that BC Transmission? That was actually CHC Helicopter. BC Transmission was the work that I did while I was still in university. Okay, got it. Yeah, because you were a junior security analyst at BC Transmission. And then you mentioned CHC Helicopter. Yes. What is that firm? And you were hired as an IT security administrator. Correct. So it is a it's a global logistics company. They provide a lot of helicopter uh, services to both uh, rescue services and oil fields throughout the world. So I was brought in to serve on, on their security team, and I was basically responsible for maintaining and working on a lot of their uh, security systems throughout the world. And so were you getting taught this on the job? How were you oh, yes. actually yeah. executing? Uh, 
speaking to the power of mentorship, you know, the, the senior administrator took me under his wing, taught me every day. That was probably the, the most amazing three years professionally that I learned during my career. And it just impacted me in so many ways, right? And again, it speaks again, the importance of, of mentorship and not just, you know, throwing your young into the fire kind of thing by carefully nurturing and, and mentoring. That to me is how you end up building an amazing security workforce is by investing properly that way. Well, around this same time that you were working at CHC Helicopter, you also became a security blogger. You blogged on Tech Republic. And you then, after you spent three years there, went into the financial, not at Tech Blogger, but at CHC Helicopter. You then went into the financial services industry and you took a job as a security analyst at First West Credit Union. And your title was security analyst. You worked there for, I guess, a couple of years And in 2015, you founded your company, Cyber SC. I have two final T4C questions for you, Dominic. I ask all of my guests these questions. The first one is, could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe you even failed or face-planted on the job. But the most important part of this story is, how you persevered, and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Yeah, it's, it's, it's say the thing that story I always share is it was towards the end of my corporate career where I was feeling increasingly tired, jaded, cynical. I felt like I was losing touch with my inner self, and I decided to take a leap into entrepreneurialism. I knew nothing about being an entrepreneur, and I'd never even thought about it. I always thought I was going to be, you know, work my way up a corporate ladder kind of thing. And it was scary being an entrepreneur, you know, being the uh, sole person who brings income in, into the family, you know, having young kids, and you know, it, it was it was scary to, to take that leap. And but like I said, I, I persevered, and these past six years have been among the most amazing both personally and professionally and having gone through this self-discovery journey to really discover who I am. I, I was very, like I said, that taking that leap has I'm very, um, very blessed to have gone through that. So what was the, the struggle? Was it after you left and getting the business up and running? Is that part of it? I'd say it's part of it. I'd say that the main struggle though was that corporate destroyed who I was. The struggle was that I couldn't bring myself to go to work anymore. The struggle was that I lost my sense of identity and inner self, uh, inner self and my, uh, my inner purpose. So it was, I guess, a lot of reflection and trying to figure it, out what it, your path forward would be. Yeah, it was like I said, my, my last almost six months in corporate was wandering, right? I lost who I was and I was just, I was physically in an office, but I was not doing anything. You know, I just, I just lost myself. I rediscovered myself in, a, in an area where I never thought I would in, in, like, in that field of entrepreneurialism. And how did you do that? Just by immersing myself in things which I never really bothered to learn, you know, things like relationship building, things like networking, things like developing a sales strategy or saying, well, what would be my uh, product offering or service offering? You know, who are we going to serve? Actually, you know, having a sales call. I never had to do a sales call before <laughs> I became an entrepreneur, you know, trying to close the deal. I'll never forget the rush when I got my first client by just learning so much about that and learning that I love public speaking, that I love you know, speaking to others, that I love investing in relationships. Those are all things which corporate me, A, didn't like, or B, didn't really fully explore. You know? So that is what sort of propelled me and keeps propelling me as an entrepreneur is that every day I find out something new about myself. 
Oh, that's fantastic. So really pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone helped you to uncover other parts of who you are. Exactly. And that's why I said that I, I always thought that the corporate version of me was the real me. But I, like I said, through these past six years as an entrepreneur and through the self-discovery, I've, I've actually now realized who I was always meant to be. And that, that person who was inside me finally had the opportunity to, to, to come out. Oh, my goodness. And I'm sure that that was, while an exhilarating experience, also a very scary experience in the beginning. Oh, absolutely. The, that first year was was absolutely terrifying, you know, not knowing where income was coming from, I was going to get a client. Those were heart pounding days, you know, and but you know, you look look to where I am now and being in a spot now where we can actively choose who we engage as clients. You know, now I'm I'm able to actually keep my promise to myself where we won't bring on clients if they're jerks. If I don't feel their good positive vibes from them, it feels good to say no, right? But as a first year entrepreneur, Anyone who expressed any interest, we just said, I just said, yes, yeah, we'll do the work, right? So it's been very fulfilling to get to that point. (laughs) I'm sure. Congratulations. Final question. If you could go back to school, go back to Simon Fraser University and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself, Dominic? I'd probably break that down. The first thing would be study more than just technical stuff. I wish I had taken more business courses. I wish I had learned more about you know, uh, understanding of sales processes and, and things of that nature. Maybe even taking some more psychology courses. That would have made me much more well-rounded uh, earlier in my career. I think it would have propelled me uh, much faster. So that's number one. The other one would be, and I, I know I mentioned this earlier, spend time investing in relationships. I always tell university students and college students I speak to now, start building your network now, right? Invest in relationships now. I didn't start investing in my network until I was probably eight years into my career, seven years into my career. If I started doing that from day one, I think I would be farther ahead where we are now. I truly believe in the power of that. Dominic and his partner co-host the podcast Cyber Security Matters. It launched in 2019. Tons of episodes to binge if you are interested in cybersecurity, all aspects of it. That's what they dig into, friends. Dominic, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. You have such a fascinating job and industry to work in. And I greatly appreciate you making the time to talk with us about it. Thank you so much for having me on your awesome show. I love the coffee theme. This is absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.